Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Welcome to our show, everybody, Working on Wellbeing. Today, we're live from Houston, Texas, and I see the beautiful Houston weather, so I'm a bit jealous. Houston's one of my favorite cities in the country. And we're joined by the um, ever unassuming but incredibly brilliant Mr. Bruce Huntley. Thank you so much. Welcome, Bruce, to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Y'all, listen to me. I'm back in Texas again, Bruce. Bruce won't brag about himself. So I'm going to, if it's okay with you, Mr. Huntley, I'm going to brag a little bit for you. For the, the last 20 years, Bruce has been working in retail and service and solutions industries, always in these HR leadership roles. But you're going to see in a minute that they're not traditional by any stretch of the imagination. He's currently VP of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and HR for Eclera Solutions. But at one point, he was also the HR leader target before joining Eclera. But he challenges the status quo. So I am so excited to talk to Bruce because he did that even in HR. He took his organization development skills and created this really unique HR role where He's building organizations, he's optimizing them, he's recruiting talent, developing talent, engineering and re-engineering processes, reducing turnover, reducing expenses, putting in new comp models, really sort of leading with this intentionality that I so love, but also uplifting employees along the way building training and opportunities and effective employee benefits. And, you know, my heart, he leads with love. So quite impressively behind all of that, as if that wasn't enough, Bruce also has a master's in, uh, let me get this right, human relations, human resource management, and organization development, making the rest of us look bad here, Bruce, and all from the University of Oklahoma which, by the way, must make your Texas colleagues go crazy a little bit. I I know I lived in Houston. I know that Texas-Oklahoma rivalry runs pretty deep. So I don't know, Bruce, I'm sure I missed a ton of your accomplishments. So we can fill them in as we go. But I have been looking forward to talking to you for a year since we first met. So thank you so much for joining us and for so graciously sharing your time. There are a zillion directions we could go with this. I could jump into re-engineering processes and spend two hours on that. But I want to start in a different place, if it's okay with you. I would like to start in Muskegee, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> not, not just because I'm an anthropologist and, you know, I love the mounds and the indigenous villages, but I am most fascinated by your personal journey from Muskegee. So Could you share a bit of that? What was it like growing up in Oklahoma and how did all of that share your journey to HR? You know, I won't share, you know, in what uh, decade I I grew up, but, uh, you know, that'll that'll kind of date me a little bit. But growing up in a small town in, in northern Oklahoma really shaped the way I looked at the world. Growing up there in a small town, I think at the time was probably 40, 50,000 people at best, right? And so, 
growing up in an all-black neighborhood in the far north end of Muskogee, and really being an understanding. And I can tell you, I was one of the first people to be bused, you know, in Muskogee. So uh, in the third grade, when I was going to an all-black school, when I, in going into the fourth grade, they started busing. And so I had to go across town, uh, so to speak, to a white school. And that also shaped kind of how I looked at the world and really how I embraced the world because that was not an easy transition because uh, I can remember, you know, several fights on the playground, uh, you know, each and every day for that first, you know, year or two years, really, you know, having parents not really, you know, seeing kids in school one day and then the next day and the rest of the year, you don't see them anymore. Uh, so those kind of things really built an indelible impression on me from a young age. And then as I you know, got older, it was really uh, fascinating how I could really see and appreciate those things that I grew up and experienced then to translate them into now, you know, the work that I've been doing pretty much all of my life is part of this D&I work. Right. Did you also, where did you go to high school? Up there in, in Muskogee High School. So there was only one. And actually, my sophomore year, there was a, a considerable, we, they got a, a second high school. And it was incorporated into a neighborhood. And it was built outside of the city where and it was really only for our white students. So that one, and then uh, we had the Muskogee High School. So you grew up at a time where... As, as did I, where exclusion and inclusion were not just talked about, but were visible, right? Yes. And, you know, now they've, they've become more systemic and in many ways insi- much more insidious and hidden. But that really did start to inform where you took your career and where you took, I guess, your thinking at the University of Oklahoma as well. Right. You might be the only person I know, actually, who has a master's in HR relations and all the rest of those pieces. So how, how did you make that kind of decision? Do you think it was just sort of by osmosis that you grew to appreciate people and that led you there? No, I, I think it was more about how, as I grew up, I, I understood I was always I never wanted to be in charge, but I was always good at helping the person in charge be better. And, you know, I, I saw as I, you know, I, I played basketball in high school and in college. And so, you know, I was always maybe not the captain, but I was right there to help the captain kind of do everything that they were doing in classes. Same kind of thing, you know, just making sure that everything happened right and just going in and figuring out each time I had a job, that interaction with the HR department was never quite good. <laughs> and so I, I, I said, you know, I can I can do this. I can make this better. I can I can I can figure out how to do these things and do them better and, and help people get better. And that was my whole thing is just helping people get better which I thought that what HR was really about. Yeah, it, we might, I might be aging myself here, but, you know, that whole idea of a personnel department and applications and, you know, what HR was, was really quite different, you know, if you go back 20 years versus what we're seeing now. So 
I, you know, I hear you and, and know the HR at that point really did need to get better. So I'm glad people like you are around to drive that change. But I did forget one of your, I think one of your most prestigious awards. And I, I believe that it also had a bearing on where you are today, but you got the, um, you were awarded the Carl Albert Scholarship. And didn't you do your internship in state government? So talk about bureaucracy after bureaucracy, you know, at the time HR and then government as well. So what, what was that like? That was really my first real introduction into that personnel department. Uh, and, and like you said, that, that was a long time ago, but, but, you know, seeing, all of the uh, rows and rows of, of file cabinets and, and all this paper and, you know, really about, hey, sit down and fill out this form and not really kind of caring about what the person was doing or going through or even congratulating them on, on maybe having a new job or, or anything like that. The experience was was nothing, right? It, it was just a matter of get this filled out and get on your way so I can get to the other person. And, and that was really difficult for me because, you know, I, there was a lot of people I would see that, you know, this was maybe their first job or maybe they were, this was a, a job that was going to take their family out of poverty, maybe into a, the next level or, or maybe even just, you know, barely out of it. So, so it was really exciting for them. And then to have that interaction with the personnel department that really kind of dampened that. And and if you had a question or a complaint or anything, you know, there was like, well, who do I go to? Who do I who do I deal with? And, and it was like, not us. So that was one of those things that really kind of pushed me in that direction, too, is that, you know, I, I really cared about people and wanted to help them. And I could see the excitement when they walked in the door and I could see that excitement leave as they walked out of the door and, and it didn't leave me in a good space. Yeah. HR is not supposed to suck hope out of you, right? Just <laughs> have a much broader uplifting experience. But I also recall that I talk about having these aha or wow moments. And I know that you had one, I think you were 27 and you had a moment that really shaped, I guess, your mindset and your career. Maybe share with our listeners what happened and why that was so impactful. Well, I had gone, I was working for a company, a security company, and we were losing a contract. And I had my CEO, I had a great running post, I guess you could call it at that point. And and, and my folks were happy um, I would, I had learned all those things to, you know, Hey, you know, I cared about them. I made sure they were happy. They, they, so my post was running great. My CEO came over and said, Hey, I want you to go to this other one. It's not running well. And I said, okay. And I, I said, you know, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, why am I getting punished for doing a good job? But I'm like, okay, I, I'm gonna go do this just because he asked me, I go over and, and I do it and just bothered me about how, how it happened, right? You know, he, you hardly ever saw him. And when you saw him, it was something going on. So next couple of days I saw him again and I, and I asked him, I said, why did you want me to come over here? And he was, he was like, well, I'll be honest with you. People like you and people trust you. And we're about to lose this contract and I need you to get rid of all these people. And, and I was like, how do I do that? You know, it, it didn't give me any kind of tools or anything to kind of figure that out. And to make matters worse, this was right before Christmas. 
So it was really tough. So so I'm kind of scrambling about trying to figure out how how I do this, how I get, you know, because I built relationships with these people because that was my first thing, you know, get in, figure out how do I build relationships? How do I get them, figure out how they work and then get the best out of them? So now I got to turn around and tell them they're fired. So those kind of things really, it wore on me. So, you know, years later, I, I figured this out, but, you know, I went and I tried to find, okay, so how can I find them other jobs? How can I get them unemployment, you know, and stuff? So I started kind of trying to figure that out as a young man and, and not really having those those HR tools to kind of do that and was successful, got them where they needed to be. We lost the contract and, and, and I got everybody kind of placed except a couple of people. But that really, it really wore on me for a long time that I, I got used just because I was doing a good job. And then now, now I'm using this for bad rather than good. But as I connect the dots for, you know, what's that DNA of Bruce Huntley look like? I think back on you as your younger self you know, facing discrimination and, you know, segregation. And then I look at how you found with the Carl Albert piece that you wanted to uplift people and couldn't stand the idea of the door closing on hope. And then here you are caring about helping essentially outplace people who you've had to let go. And all of that, as I put it together, just screams empathy. And we don't talk a lot about the role of a HR as empathetic guidance in an organization, but it's very much a part of, I think, the culture and approach that you take towards HR. And that fascinates me because it's often, you know, almost dismissed as a soft skill, if you will. Right. But for me, I think it's the most important skill and the approach that you take to diversity and DEI, I think, also sits on top of this empathetic approach. So maybe talk a little bit about DEI and HR and my talk about, I don't think they should ever be separate. I think it's a cultural component and they need to be lockstep, hand in hand, driving culture. But how are you approaching it? Are the Is the challenge the, the same? I think it is the same. I share your passion around that is that it should be the same. Um, it should be fall into the same because DNI is something that permeates the entire organization. And I always fall back to, uh, you know, John Chaney, the Temple basketball player, I mean, coach. He always said, you know, if you won't be successful, if you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, and I always think about that anytime I'm dealing with someone or dealing above me or, or, or below me in, in, in role or whatever the case may be, I have to be able to put myself in that person's shoes to kind of make sure I understand where they're coming from. And then I can be that empathetic leader to kind of help them move forward. But you're right. It, those those two things have to be, you know, lock and step, because I know from a black man in America, there are certain things that I do. That I may not know as a about gender. I have the responsibility to make sure that I learn and grab that knowledge and grab that competency. So then I can put myself in those shoes to make sure that I can understand. I can help Anita if there is something going on and really be that ally to kind of help her get to where she wants to be, if that is the case. So it's interesting that you went to allies because that's exactly where I was headed. Because so much of employee well-being 
is about having that safe space to be vulnerable. And we talk a lot about human capital management and infrastructure, but there's this social infrastructure or this social network, you will, of mentors and allies and sponsors and how we leverage that model in the well-being world, I think is a topic to be explored. How, how do you do that now? Or what are your thoughts about this need for a safe infrastructure and how do you build and sustain that? I think you make a great point is those three, a lot of people confuse those three as the same. Yeah. And, and they are really very different and separate. And, and so building an infrastructure, I know we here, that is part of our foundation. We help people understand how to be an ally. We understand and help people understand how to be a mentor, how to be, how to be a sponsor, and really make sure that they understand that those things are really paramount to making sure that all of this works, that this is the glue that makes inclusion and equity really work. And so just making sure those things are, are working together and helping people understand those, those foundational properties really are great. Yeah, you, you're the first organization I've actually talked to that really has taken a step back around DEI and said, let's build the infrastructure, let's build the foundation, and let's make sure we get the foundation right and then build upon the foundation and Kudos to you, Bruce. And I believe that that's the right way to do it because that creates sustainability. But it creates sustainability because you have now champions internally. You've got allies for people. You've got mentors. You've got a structured mentorship program. You have sponsors. I I would not be where I am today if my first boss hadn't been my sponsor and leaned in around me as a human being, me as you know, uh, an employee, but even as simple as telling me, don't be stupid, put your money in your 401k, it's free money. Right. And I sat back and said, I, I don't know what a 401k is. You know, my degree is anthropology. I have no idea what you're talking about. But, you know, sponsors are really sponsoring and championing you through the organization. That part of the infrastructure is often absent. There are allies and mentors, but true sponsorship, I think at that next level is something that makes programs successful. And it looks like, and sounds like you guys are building that at Eclair. That's really human capital, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we, we saw early, you know, other organizations were going out in a more of a reactive mode of going and saying, okay, we're, we're about diversity. We're going to go get all these people. And they went and got all those people. And 90 days later, all those people left. Right. And then they're like, well, what happened? You know, nobody. And so, so understanding that those things are got to help make that, like you said, that psychological and that physical safety is really important. uh, So that when they come into the organization, the words match the action. Yeah, you know, we at Salary Finance and and I as a human being live in those waters of financial well-being and money is still taboo. It's taboo to talk about, you know, externally, but in the organization, it still remains a taboo, even more, I think, than mental health, which has begun to get much more socialized in organizations. But when you look at the data and you tie that financial well-being 
and the idea that people don't feel safe to share that they're financially vulnerable. You look at a time where now, you know, inequities are everywhere. I think it's 73% of African-American and Latinx adults lack any emergency funds. 73%. And 48%, I think, of that same population can't pay their bills each month. And then, you know, for me, most horrifying is all the payday loans. 60% of those go to women and a high percentage of that is women of color. So you think about how do we even talk about that? What if I find myself in an emergency in the workplace? I'm not going to talk about money. I don't want somebody to judge me as a woman thinking that I don't know how to manage money. Right. So I often talk about financial well-being part of the DEI agenda. Do you think that makes sense, Bruce? Or is there a way we can create a safe space to talk about being financially vulnerable? I think you're you're exactly right. And and I think that was one thing that drew me to salary finance was the fact that you made the connection between the two. And those were the things that I was already thinking, but I didn't know how to make that connection. And you guys made that connection for me. But through again, you know, I am a big school guy. So every time, you know, I want to do education, I want to make sure people get educated and and understand and and gain knowledge behind what they need to do. And we understood that there was a large population of our employees that were living paycheck to paycheck. You know, if they had one thing go wrong, that they were going to be out in the street. And we didn't want that. You know, we don't want people to have to worry about home and work. When you come here, we want you to be here and be happy and safe. And so your organization really has helped us in that manner, uh, really kind of pushing the education of people and helping them get on a budget. You know, the something simple as that, just making sure people understood how to get on a budget and really help them understand how to manage their money instead of their money managing them is really important. And it, it really has opened up the ability for us to really kind of talk about money and talk about, do I need to raise or do you need to manage your money better? Well, yeah. I say, well, go on salary finance and go through that educational piece and you can and, and that'll help. And then let's talk. And I've done that a couple of times and I haven't had to have that talk again because people now understand uh, how they're managing their money. Yeah, I I go back to that story I shared with you. I didn't speak the language of money when I entered the workplace. I didn't gain it as a child. I clearly didn't gain it in school. And so it was it could have been Greek that he was speaking to me when he talked about my, you know, salary. I I still laugh about it now because I had just had my master's, I was working on my doctorate. So I had this perspective of money from school and you made about $600 a month, right? So when they offered me a whopping $18,000 a year to, you know, go I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I I'll, I'll be able to buy anything I want." I had no sensibility, I had no way to measure that. I did not speak that language. So what you're doing around employee well-being and around the financial side of that just starts with the basics of language because you can't create resilience if you don't know how to speak the language. I mean, as long as we're there, let's talk a little bit about employee well-being because it's got to be holistic, right? We can talk about financial well-being, but you're doing things around mental well-being and health and well-being. And all of these come together, I think, in a, a quite holistic 
if I'm, you know, struggling with my finances, I could also be struggling with my mental health. And so they all play together. And I saw a very interesting MetLife report recently where employees are now asking employers to customize their benefits that, you know, we've been talking about standards in HR for years and we're so happy. And now all of a sudden the rug gets ripped out. And now we've got to think about how do we personalize it? And at first I thought that's crazy, Bruce. But then I realized, you know, I have a 24 year old son and he's lived with personalization of everything for his life, right? Content tools. And so why not benefits? So what do you think about all that? Because I think they might kind of be onto something. I think so. I think we, we're, I hate to blow our own horn or I, I don't like to blow our own horn, but I think we are ahead of that curve of trying to make sure, you know, I had a discussion with a peer of mine about uh, EAP and they were trying to, or employee assistance program, and, 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 and they were trying to figure out if they should or should not have it. And I'm like, this is a must. This is, this is not a, a, a nice to have anymore. This is something that needs to happen because you don't know that EAP may save one of your employees' lives. And we've gone a little bit further to ask our employee, uh, EAP vendor to open it up to the family. Uh, because last year we saw how much being in the house and, and secluded and in isolation and and all of these things coming down and all the social issues and all these things coming down on people and they're being in there with their family because, you know, maybe their family member got kicked out of their house. Now they got to come and live with them. And we went to them intentionally and said, hey, we don't want this only for our employees. We want that for the whole entire family. Anybody that's in that household, we need them to be able to be able to call and get help, any kind of help that they need. And so those things really kind of making sure that we do those intentional steps to make sure that we get people assured we're going to have to have kind of a standard across the board. But there are going to be things that you can personalize and be flexible. And I think that's another thing that last year kind of taught us as HR professionals. How do we be flexible in in how we offer things and how we do things? Because we had gotten so rigid and so focus on being strategic that we forgot about the human and we forgot about how we affect those humans each day. And, and that, and now I think we're coming back to that point about how do we, how do we, I saw, I saw something the other day about uh, that said, you know, human value trumps profit. And it really, really, that was really true because, it, you know, those those kind of things, you, you make sure that that person is is OK. They're going to outperform anything that you could do if you're just kind of leaving them up to their own devices. Yes. Yeah, since you're sitting in Texas and I miss Houston, one of my earliest mentors was Herb Kelleher, the founder of Southwest Airlines. And I remember being at a Chase board meeting and presenting all this great work that I thought I had done around customer service. And he sat back and let me finish talking and said, Anita, what are you doing about employees? Because you can't have a satisfied customer without a satisfied employee. So you did it all wrong. And Bruce, those words completely shaped everything I have done since then. 
because if you don't think about it as employee centric, then you're missing the whole trick, right? Whether it's we're talking about DEI or financial well-being or you know health benefits, it's all got to be employee centric. And it sounds like so much of what you're doing is that. But you know, you talked a bit about 2020 and you know what came out of that was social justice and this commitment to diversity. But it also, you know, we uncovered so many systemic divides. And how do you bridge that? We're talking about healthcare divides, financial well-being, wealth divides, opportunity divides. You know, how can we address these systemic issues? How can we control these divides? And you know, what role can employers play, and particularly HR or DEI professionals, as we're addressing systemic issues? Because back to the foundations, the foundations of those issues aren't there. So where do you start? I think we have to start with a mentor of mine said that DEI is not a one size fits all. Right. And so, so pick two or three things that your organization is struggling with and you know, they, who, what they are, pick those two or three things and go after them with all your might. And then after you get those things going, get two or three more because there's there's more. But but you got to start somewhere. And, uh, you know, it was really about how do we make sure people are safe? How do we make sure that people are 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 psychologically and physically safe in our organizations? That was the thing. And so that birth, you know, those things. But I, I challenge all of those professionals out there to really kind of look at what is your organization struggling with around these three things? And, and don't get those three things confused either. Diversity, you know, inclusion and equity are all three different things. So we look at those things. How do we make sure that we get at least two or three of those things started in our organization? So you're singing my song because I, I do think that we have had this tendency to lump together diversity, equity, and inclusion and act as if it's one way to solve this. And in fact, it's incredibly discrete pieces. But there's a another friend of mine in, in the mix. His name is Matt Calderoni. And Matt talks about how you engineer your life. Once you define that, what you want that greatness to be, you just engineer your life and you just go after it. And like you, he was an athlete. And so he borrows a lot from the metaphor of having been you know, a professional athlete. And I suspect the same is true of you playing that game and knowing that game and knowing, let me create these three things, put everything against them, and I'm going to see a difference. And it sounds a bit like you embrace that same mindset. Right. It is very poignant to be able to to figure out in, in a game, you have your game plan and you have these three things. And, and a lot of times people forget about halftime. <laughs> but but you go into the game with those three things and 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 sometimes they don't work. And so you you got but you got halftime and you make sure that halftime you go in, you look at yourself and say, hey, you know, I was supposed to do these three things. I didn't really do those. How can I do them better? And then come out and, and finish. Uh, but really, I go after things in that sports metaphor the same way. I love that. Bruce, I have also heard that you're an avid reader and rumor has it that you've read 
how to win friends and influence people about a million times. You know, I think about when I heard that, I thought that was written, what, in like the 1930s or something, and it still stands the test of time. So I wonder, we like to leave our listeners with a nugget of wisdom or a little cerebral gift along the way. And I thought, is there something you want to share either from, you know, Dale Carnegie or something else that you'd like to leave them with to think about? I think that is one of my favorite books of all time. It has really shaped a lot of my early and now mid-adult life. Just kind of making sure the principle number four, I think, is the most important and and has helped me the most. And, And that's ask question. I've always been inquisitive about why is that? Why are we doing that? And then, you know, as I'm talking to people I ask them questions about them. How are you doing that? What happens when you do that? Is that maybe the way that we should be doing that? Should we be doing it a different way? So always asking those questions, uh, you know, even when my team asks me, you know, hey, we need to do this. My first question is, so, so what do you think? What do we what should we be doing? One of my team said the other day, Bruce, you, you, you always asking us questions. And I said, well, you always know the answer. You just need the right question to get to that answer. <laughs> and so so, that, so that's kind of been my philosophy. And I think as we get better at asking questions and really caring about the answer and really caring about the person on the other side of that answer, I think we will be a better world uh, if we can do that. Uh, I agree. Thank you for that. Uh, my, my favorite Dale Carnegie lesson is always keep smiling. Also happens to be one of my favorite, you know, songs, uh, smiling through everything, right? But Bruce, my Italian mom always told me to do the right thing, especially when nobody is looking. And you, my friend, are really living her lesson to me. So I applaud you and uh, with your leadership that coming from where you came from in Northern Oklahoma and driving change in the world and doing the right thing when nobody is looking. I am so grateful for you for being that authentic human being and authentic leader and a quiet hero to all of us. And I know you talk about, you know, supporting others, but I have to tell you, I think you're leading the path and I'd always be here I'll, at any day of the week. I'll be your second. So Bruce, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. Thank you for being a part of this. And, you know, until the next time, the rest of us will be working on our well-being, too. So thank you for today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. I really uh, it's, it's tough for me to talk about myself. And, and, and this was really good. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Bruce. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.